Welcome to Forward. I am your host, Alison Innes, and each episode I bring you a conversation with one of our researchers at Brock University's Faculty of Humanities. Today we are meeting Dr. Lisa Paul, a scholar in children's literature and director of the PhD program in interdisciplinary humanities. Much of Lisa's work recently has focused on the figure of Eliza Fenwick, a 19th century British educator who came to Niagara from London. Her book on Eliza, titled Eliza Fenwick, Early Modern Feminist, was published in 2019, link in the show notes for you, and Lisa is currently working on a scholarly edition of Fenwick's letters. She has also published in first volume of Caribbean Literature in Transition, and is a co-editor of a new edition of Keywords for Children's Literature. Lisa was also a co-applicant on the British Library Endangered Program Grant to digitize the Barbados Mercury and Bridgetown Gazette, and she's working on some very, or on a very exciting uh, local project as well that we are going to ask her about. So welcome, Lisa. Hello, Alison, and thank you so much for having me. I'm so delighted to be part of your podcast. I am so glad that we can have you. So just before we were starting to record, I asked you, what is children's literature? So I'd like to kind of pick up there because it sounded like the idea of children's literature might be a little bit more complicated than it first appears. It is more complicated, I think, partly because it's so hard to define. And also it includes young adult literature and do people who are children read children's literature? And is it just about picture books? Is it age defined? One of the things that we considered as we were developing the Norton Anthology of Children's Literature, so it was the first Norton Anthology of Children's Literature, was how we would structure it. So Norton Anthologies on English literature, for example, are typically, as they say, from Beowulf to Virginia Woolf. And so we thought we could do the Norton Anthology of Children's Literature, which would be from Beowulf, which would include that, to the big bad wolf, but <laughs> as well as other wolf stories. But the idea is that the literature, children's literature is part of a literary canon, and the books we read as children are, are often the ones that stay with us the longest, they're the ones that we've read most, the ones that are a part of what matters to us as we're growing up. And it introduces real children to a literary Life. It's one of the reasons why it remains such an important feature of, of a child's life. I am also reminded of C.S. Lewis, who said that, I, don't, I won't have the quotation exactly right, but he said just because you learn to like scotch doesn't mean that you don't, don't like, you lose the taste for lemonade, something like that. So that it's not something that you leave behind, but something that stays with you and certainly informs a lot of the work we still consider as part of a, a literary canon, including a Cinderella story, for example. I know um, I certainly enjoy going back and reading some of some of those uh, classics that I first encountered, like The Secret Garden and, 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 and stories like that. Do you have a particular favorite of, of your own? I, there are books that I love and return to, although I will, rather than say a favorite, I will just say that I was speaking with the associate dean, Elizabeth Lossett, yesterday, and she was told we were talking about lists. And so I was referring to Arnold LaBelle's story about the list, where in Frog and Toad, they have a list and then cross off the items on the list and when when the list gets lost, you don't know what to do next. <laughs> um, but there are other ones. I also, 
focus really, and the reason I got to be a children's literature scholar was because of the work that I'd done on children's poetry, and it was initially the poetry of Ted Hughes, and understanding how his work for children did speak, or exist in a kind of continuum with his work unmarked as being for children, and so really that was how I started as a children's literature specialist, and also realizing that half of Ted Hughes's output was for children, both stories and, and prose, and then understanding the relationship between the two of them. So how do you move from children's literature and poetry um, into the uh, story of Eliza Fenwick. Okay, well, <laughs> there, there must be an interesting trajectory there. there. To start with, I was I found her product placement novel for children. So in the early 1800s, she was writing really innovative children's books, including an amazing product placement novel on the children's bookstore in a very upmarket place in London, in Bond Street in 1805. And where she was essentially doing the product placement for um, for the children's books in in this shop, and so that's how I'd initially found her children's books. And then when I started reading them, I also realized how innovative and how good they were. She also did a backstory for a performing dog that actually performed in Drury Lane in the early 1800s too he but so she did a kind of lassie come home story she did a paint by number parts by color book grammar book for children she actually put together a one of the original collections of nursery verse although it was published anonymously but i was able to trace it to belonging to her that um became the kind of founding piece for nurse, subsequent nursery verse collections. And she had solicited a piece from Dorothy Wordsworth. So at the time, she was also friends with, and this is in London in the 1790s and around 1800, she was friends with Dorothy Wordsworth, with William Wordsworth, William Wordsworth, with Coleridge, with Sabay, with just about everybody who was anybody in London in that period. And so that's how it was through her works for children that I eventually came to know her. And then when I got to Brock a long time ago in 2005, was also astonished to learn that she was here. I, so I ran across the information but didn't realize quite how close she was. She was actually teaching school in Niagara Lake in the 1830s. And she was extraordinary. So, so how did how did she come from working in London to Niagara-on-the-Lake? Now, I do know that it was by way of Barbados and New York, but it sounds like there's a there's a lot of interesting details in there about her story. There is. She was essentially a single working mother. So, in the 1790s, she was married to a guy named John Fenwick, who was a um, radical journalist friend of William Godwin and Charles Lamb and just, again, all of the kinds of radical people who were there at the time. But he was also given to both drink and debt. So in the, by about 1800, Eliza realized that he was not going to be a very stable source of support for herself or their two children. 
one born in, in 1789, the other born in 1798. And so she had to figure out how she was going to make a life as a single, essentially single working mother. So that's when she was writing all of these children's books in the early 1800s, including for William Godwin. She'd already published a, a novel for adults in 1795. She was very close with all of the people who were involved with early feminism, with developing radical approaches to education, inventing liberation through literacy in the, in the period. It was a very exciting period. And it was also a period when children's literature itself was coming into its own and the educational value of what it was like to be an educated person and to make sure that, that women and children and enslaved people all had the right to be literate. So, and in fact, the first book that I, I, I like to call it my starter book on Eliza was actually called The Children's Book Business Lessons from the Long 18th Century. And it was about that period when children's literature was becoming a formalized industry and subject of its own of its own specialized collections, books, and including there were little miniature books you could get miniature libraries in, in their own little bookcases. Um, so that was it was a very extraordinary period. Because she was a single working mother, she eventually she figured she had to make sure that her children were educated to be self-supporting as well. So she ultimately educated her eldest daughter as an actress. And her daughter, whose name was Eliza Ann, which can be confusing, was a reluctant actress at best. But she did act in the London theater with friend of the Kembles and all of the kind of major acting families. She got a gig in Barbados, and it would give kind of stability to her, an income which she could send back to her mother, which she could use to support the younger son, her younger brother. Um, he was 10 years younger. And in his education, so Eliza Ann got to Barbados. She married another guy who was driven to drink and dead, ultimately. But figured, especially because she was, Eliza Ann was a reluctant actress, that she could work with her mother in running a school for girls in Barbados. So she arrived, Eliza Ann arrived in late 1811. By 1814, Eliza, late, very late 1814, Eliza arrived with her son, who had by that time finished doing some school. Eliza herself had also had a couple of gigs as a governess, one in London, one in Ireland by that time. And so they started a school for white girls, um, rich white girls, daughters of the plantocracy in Bridgetown at a time when Barbados, of course, was a colony dependent on enslavement. It was between the time when the slave trade had been stopped, or made illegal in 1807, and between when, when slavery was actually abolished in 1833. They were there between late 1814 and 1822, Eliza's son, who was just 16, um, died of yellow fever not long after they were there in 1816. Now, as a single mother and with a daughter as an actress, was there stigma associated with that um, at, at that time? Only later. <laughs> Only later, okay. Only yeah. for her descendants. In fact, one of the things that I found when I was, because I found a collection of Eliza's letters in the New York 
historical society. And there were a collection of her letters to her British author friend, Mary Hayes, published in 1927, when Eliza's descendants found out about the letters only just before they were published. Her descendants were horrified to find out that their ancestor, so essentially the woman who had been their grandmother, had been an actress. But at the time, it was one of the viable occupations for women, although as Eliza's own origins were as a daughter of Methodism or her father had been one of the early itinerant preachers as Methodism was being invented. It was still a kind of racy thing to do, but at the time it was also a political thing. So in England, everybody was going to the theater all the time, um, William Godwin and Thomas Holcroft. It was, it was part of their kind of activist community to um, Eliza Ann was was educated, as I'd said, to both to be an actress, meaning that she had learned to to both sing and dance and be musical and do French and Italian. And those were, what should we say, transferable skills. Um, <laughs> the original to, the original yeah. humanities transferable skills, yes, I mean extra languages. To, right, <laughs> to um, education. And so that made them um, very hot properties for being teachers. And Eliza, because she'd also been so heavily informed by the pedagogical innovations of the late 18th, early 19th century, was doing what we would now call a humanities curriculum, you would be pleased to know. Oh, excellent. <laughs> art and music and literature, and as well as science and French and Italian all of which were on the curriculum and really important at the time. So she's running a school. How big were her, the classes? Did she have a lot of students? Was it fairly small? It was It was relatively small. There would have been, she does have those figures somewhere, and I have forgotten the exact number. That's okay. <laughs> it would have been about 20, but in, in Barbados, the scary thing is that they would have been attended by enslaved um, attendants who worked for their... So when she was teaching the white children, um, was she also consciously teaching the their enslaved attendants, or no? She was, do we know what that dynamic was? She was horrified, but she tried because she had been an abolitionist. She was caught in this kind of moral dilemma. On the one hand, she recognized that enslavement was a really bad idea, and in her product placement, not recalled visits to the juvenile library. She does have an enslaved nanny who teaches herself to read, which is, as far as I know, the only instance of that kind. Um, and so she tried to do something I didn't even know existed initially. She tried to do rent-a-slave. Rent-a-slave didn't work very well for her. So she wouldn't have to buy. Enslaved. All right, okay. okay. So you, know, you could rent instead of buying, and it was kind of morally okay, but it turned out not to be such a good idea. And... I think she had been a little disconcerted on one hand because she'd been so much part of the left-wing political, what we would call left-wing political reform group of people, community in 1790s, early 1800 London. She understood about 
revolution, that people who were repressed will rebel. But when she got to Barbados, and she, because the idea of women being enslaved was used metaphorically by someone like Ben, Mary Wollstonecraft, she couldn't quite cope with the, or couldn't quite understand how the actual enslaved people weren't like the metaphorical ones that she encountered previously. Actual enslaved people resisted, as she knew repressed people would do. And so she, at one point she says, they just seem to be so, she, she remarks on their ingenuity and creativity, and they steal, even though she won't beat them, because she knows that that's a bad thing to do to people. Um, and she can't quite figure that out, which is why she eventually packs it in by 1822. Her daughter is fading by that time. Uh, she's, she, has, she exists in a kind of problematic relationship with the enslaved people who are mm -hmm. working for her and with her through that period and writes about them periodically, including expressing a, riff, a notion that, they, that the society is destined to failure because it's built on such corruption and moral, just a kind of moral bad faith, something which is so significantly awful and that it's got to collapse at some point. So she leaves Barbados and she heads to directly to New York or? No, first to New Haven because that's where other people had gone. Okay. Um, it was by 1822, it was a tricky time in Barbados. There was what Wilberforce was trying to put in what was called a, a registry bill to try to stop the fact that to stop um, slave trading by other countries because slave traders, was, it was still business as usual if you were um, French or, or Dutch or other Americans, they were all still doing slave trading and so the registry bill was an attempt to kind of stop that into Barbados. I mean, the, everybody was, well, all the white people were upset about this. And there had been a, a slave rebellion in 1816, very famous rebellion, and so she really was distressed by the fact that this was a society that was going to collapse pretty soon, she was pretty sure, that she was looking for security, stability. It was, she, her son, of course, had died, and she knew that this was, and her daughter was, was getting weaker and weaker with each pregnancy. She ended up mm. having four children. And so there was a lot of incentive for her to leave. Other people by this time had, from Barbados and the Caribbean, had moved to New Haven. So there was an established community there, including people who had been her former students. So she had, she knew people in New Haven. She tried to start the school with her daughter. It ultimately never really got off the ground. She tried again in New York, and then her daughter died in New York of, of probably something like congenital heart failure, leaving her in her 60s as a single working grandmother with four young children to support by Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so she leaves New York and comes to Niagara. And the way she gets to Niagara is that it looks like across the road from where she was living in New York was a sister of William Warren Baldwin. And if you do Ontario history, or Toronto history for that matter, if you 
if you're at Casa Loma, for example, in Toronto, you can walk up the Baldwin steps or run up the Baldwin steps because that property used to be owned by the Baldwin family. They were important for the development of parliamentary democracy in, in Ontario. There and there's a Baldwin collection in the library. So she, it turns out that one of William Warren Baldwin's sisters was living in New York. The other one was married to a lawyer named Breckenridge in Niagara on the, what's now Niagara on the Lake. Breckenridge died, leaving Mrs. Breckenridge with young children pregnant and with children of her own. And so the New York sister thought this would be good. You could have two widowed women with children to raise, running a school for girls together on the model that Eliza had already established successfully in Barbados, in New York, in New Haven, and would be able to start again on the property that already belonged to the Breckenridge family. It's a house that's just been restored, so if you are in Niagara on the Lake, it's 240 Center Street. Um, and that's where they just started up again in 1829. So what was her school like in Niagara on the Lake? Well, and her life like well, here? What do we know about it? Again, you know that she was very active in the community. She very quickly became involved with all the, and you can still see the kinds of names. Cook's family, for example, turns up. She they attracted pupils. You can see that they were doing exactly the kind of school programming that she'd had in her schools in Barbados and in New Haven and New York. It was progressive in that there was music, there was art, there was different kinds of um, decorative sewing, like fancy work. There was um, literature, there were dances. She held dances. In fact, the school ball had something that had been in Barbados too. So all the, so she, there's a whole lovely piece in a letter about how she organized a school ball in Niagara and who attended and what they wore and how they, what they danced and, and their musicality. You can you can also read letters where she's or where she's ordering the music that she that the children will learn how to play that the girls will learn how to play in New York. Um, so she was there mostly between about 18, 1829 and 1833, 1834. By that time, things were beginning to fall apart, and then she came to Toronto just as Toronto became Toronto, and was the first mistress of the boys' boarding house for. Upper Canada College, which was also oh, wow. a theater school at the time for, for what became the University of Toronto, University College. And so she's, and you've got letters from her that are, that are, have as their return address, University College or Upper Canada College. So how did her curriculum, her approach to teaching, how did that compare to what was standard? And maybe again, a reflection on what things are like now compared to what she would have been teaching. She, one of the things that if you're an educator today, you would talk about something called differentiated education, which assumes that you need different approaches for different children. And she expresses exactly that in her, in her writing about, about teaching, that she's trying to ensure that each child will be able to succeed. She doesn't exactly use these, these words to her own level. The other thing that's so interesting is she uses 
phrases to describe teaching that feel like synaptic activity in the brain, a kind of fireworks going off between like a, a synaptic leap that's going on in each description. She, she describes the interaction between teacher and student and the intellectual energy that, that really sparks both and how rewarding it is for teacher and student to be feeling energized by that relationship. And that's very different from authoritarian approaches to education or the kinds that we have now that are very rigid and, and you have to fill out those boxes in order to fulfill the curriculum requirements. And this is sounding very familiar to me in part of my experience as listeners know I did I I, I did a master's degree. I was a teaching assistant and I remember one of the things we often talked about in our TA workshops was the relationship of learning and the community of learning. So she's already talking about that. In, that's right. So all of this comes from the kind of pedagogical practices that would have been put in place by a whole load of women you've never heard of in the 1790s. <laughs> so everything new was was already new once, and, once before. And these women, including people like Anna Barbeau, Mary Wollstonecraft, Mary Hayes, they've had the pedagogical practices. They were writing the books on engaging children, um, book called Cobwebs to Catch Flies, for example, by Eleanor Fenn. All of these women were writing really exciting pieces on what we would now probably, well, we probably wouldn't call it, but it would be maternal teaching on this mm. kind of affectionate, responsive um, version of what education could be like. In fact, my favorite line is one that comes partly, it's actually the physical line comes from William Godwin, but it was based on the work of Mary Wollstonecraft. But education is about having an active mind and a warm heart, mm. which I, I love, an active mind and a warm heart. Mm -hmm. How often in current pedagogical practice does anybody talk about an active mind and a warm heart? Never, basically. <laughs> so we have the letters, obviously, that Eliza was writing. Was, was, was she also writing about pedagogy? Was she still writing children's stories? Or does that fall by the wayside with her teaching? It's tricky. But one of the things that you find about being a biographer is that stuff is missing and that you can't find it. So I was incredibly fortunate that I found especially the cache of letters that had been unreferenced and unknown on Eliza writing from Toronto and Niagara to friends in New York. And those were in the New York Historical Society. There are, they had been cut apart by descendants of things that don't be kept, things that won't be kept. There are references to other things that she might have written. In fact, she, she writes a note to her friend in New York and says, oh, you know, I, there are these short stories I've got, and would you be interested in reading them? Or she doesn't say, which she sort of says, would you be interested in reading these stories? We don't know if she's actually written them or not. Mm -hmm. um, it's So they might have existed. They might have been published, but as anonymous, and you can't tell whether or not they did. She was pretty busy teaching, raising children, and doing the other things. I think that her, and what I argue in the biography, is that her letters 
constitute the kind of continuation of the 1790 novel she did, which was a piece of epistolary fiction, so a letter, a novel in letters. And I think her letters stand as that kind of um, outlet for her novelist's eyes and ears and sense of rhythm and plot. So I've been trying to argue that these stand as literary texts. And there's precedent for that. The last book that Mary Wollstonecraft published was a, a collection of her letters in Sweden, Denmark, from Sweden, Denmark. And, and there were other kinds of traditions for those. So it's possible, you don't really know if these were considered to be, if the letters she wrote were private letters or if they, as would have been common at the time, if they were shared mm. among other people or were intended for possible future publication. And you can see in the way she composes them, in fact, I begin the biography that way, by demonstrating just how novelistic the piece is. And I, it, the biography actually begins with her tiny fragment, with a tiny fragment where she's recording the deaths of her two eldest grandsons who were just 19 and 21. They drowned mm -hmm. in Lake Ontario because they were out in a small canoe in April and one went over and the other did. And it's mm -hmm. very... It's a way a murder mystery begins. It's very cinematic in its description. For cinema, way before. <laughs> so then in kind of recovering her story, it sounds like in some ways you have a lot of material to work with, but then that has also been censored by her. I don't know if censored is too strong of a word, but it's been influenced by her descendants and what they wanted people like you to know and not and not know about her um, and then of course the chance of uh, of whether or not something is saved and something winds up in a place of where you can find it um, so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what it's like tracking these things down and kind of some of the other sources that you also look at in addition to her letters well as, as I said, I did stumble on the, not stumble isn't the right word, and archival research isn't exactly stumbling. The tricky bit is trying to find something that's not referenced. Mm -hmm. How do you look for something that you don't know where it's going to be? So my initial story for this is when I got to Brock, I and realized that there'd been a, a there were sort of fragmentary references that she might have been in this neighborhood, and that's when I wrote a I wrote a shirt proposal, and I didn't quite put it like this, but the basic point was, so what was Eliza, who was hanging out with all the coolest people you knew in London, doing in my hood? Around, <laughs> <laughs> you know, in the, in the 1830s, where did, how did she get here? And really worried the time that I was just looking at what might have been a rhetorical question. Fortunately, um, I knew that one of her manuscript letters was in the um, what's called the Portsheimer Collection of Schelling's Circle in the New York Public Library. Mm -hmm. And I happened to be reading a biography of Mary Hayes at the time and realized that the letters that were published to Mary Hayes in 1927 were in the New York Historical Society. So walked over. Central Park and 
the, the librarian said, what box do you want? And that's when the other letters from Niagara and Toronto to friends in New York turned up telling me exactly what she was doing. Oh, I get chills just listening to that. That's amazing. amazing. And then I, I subsequently, research was basically just like that, to just start to look. So I knew, for example, that by the time, you know, later 1830s, she was in Toronto and she knew the Falklands. There is at the Toronto Public Library, which is the reference collection, which is maybe a 15-minute walk from where I live in Toronto, there is a huge room devoted to Baldwin's letters because it was so important for the development of the um, parliamentary democracy in Ontario. There is, in fact, besides a very extensive um, catalog of the letters, there was also from some time in the past a set of three file drawers with paper cards cross-referenced in somebody handwritten these out. Eliza is not there. Not anywhere in any of those references. Aww. Not in any of this cross-reference material. But I then, knowing that where she was and when she was here, knowing that she was a friend of theirs, knowing that there's references to the family and her work and her presence in the family circle. And so I just called up the boxes from those right from those years. And sure enough, manuscript letters by Eliza, unreferenced, unrecorded, turn up, including one from 1840, so shortly before she died, where she's describing taking a train for the first time. And she's and she's and so trains are just being invented. And she says, Oh, America, because she's in the US by this time. Americans are a locomotive people, she says. Speed, speed, speed. <laughs> and then there's me remembering that she left Britain, she left the UK in 1814, just as Stevenson was inventing the steam engine. And so we've got this amazing piece where she's now taking a train for the first time. So there was that, there was going to where I knew, again, just looking at the archival records, so the Archives of American Art in Washington, D.C., and knowing that one of her descendants, her great-grandson, who was an artist, his archives were there, and with some of the dates overlap. And what turned up was a the cover of a set of, so a leather cover of a set of, of um, sacred songs that had been, so it was just the cover and the title page, but it had been, um, well, her name is on embossed in gold on the mm -hmm. cover, and inside the engraving is by Lohmead Lake, and, okay, <laughs> and it's, it's then a handwritten dedication from the guy who did the music to her. Wow. Um, yeah, so, and not referenced, not known. There are 19 boxes of this guy's archives, including like every birthday card that was ever written to them pretty much. And then it just turns up. So there's that. Um, then when I was, the reason I'd gone into Barbados the, to look for the Barbados Mercury Gazette is because I knew that advertisements for the school, it was somebody 
Christine, her name is Alice Andrew Cummings at the Barbados Historical Society, had, had told me that there would be, that there had been a news, that the newspapers from the period would have included information about the school. So that's when I started, that's when I first went to the um, micro, to see the crumbling microfilm copies of the newspapers, see if I could find her. And again, these are crumbling microfilms. You can barely run them through a, a machine. They are, we're, I found out later, they were completely uncopyable because they were on what was called diazo, which was a non-preservation medium. They mm -hmm. were physically come crumbling. But I was able to then find glimpses of her and the school and, and her family and other issues were just there. Performances her daughter was in. That's so, it's, it's so exciting uh, listening to you talk about archival research. We just spoke with David Sharon, okay. um, the, arch the archivist here um, at the university, about the nature of archival research. And with my own history tr training, I tend to kind of default to thinking, of, um, to thinking about, about history. But it's so interesting how it brings history and literature together. Like it is this, this person's, um, it, it, it is Eliza's history, it's her letters, it's all of the little pieces that make up her, and it's very personal in, in, in a way. So this crumbling microfilm leads you into a really exciting project. And um, I'd like, I'm going to let you tell, <laughs> tell us about that. All right, it was when I started reading these microfilms, looking for Eliza, that I was completely caught by the Fugitive Slave Acts. These people were luminous. And I, I, again, I do want to make it clear that this is, these are in so many ways not my story. I'm not trying to plagiarism, but they were, these people were clearly so important. They were people whose courage, ingenuity, strength, resistance, resilience, just leapt off of these crumbling microfilms. And when I did discover that the microfilms were uncopyable, and I knew how important they were, I also did some search to find out if they hadn't been accessed in over 30 years, partly because they're colonial newspapers and people regard them as being just pieces that just re-inscribe a colonial narrative. Mm. But you very quickly can learn to read against the grain, and you see that they are stories of resistance fighters. And when I was reading the pieces from around 1816, when there was a, a slave rebellion that shut down the island for two weeks, I could see that the people who were in the ads must have been the rebellion was, it's now called Bus of Rebellion, it's the guys who supposedly were, they must have been the kind of de facto army. Communicating with each other, resisting, setting up the capacity for a coordinated resistance effort in that period. I did not know what you what to do with this information. As I said, I originally I just did what scholars do. Like I tried to apply to get copies in the microfilm, and it was eventually the British Librarian, after I'd been rejected several times, saying these microfilms are not copyable. You are not going to get them. And then I had no idea what to do. I did then seek out information from people who would know, including archivists, but also people who were involved in discussions of uh, black resistance strategies, including in Barbados, Alessandra Cummins at the 
Barbados Historical Society, and Hilary Beckles, who's the now the provost at the University of, of West Indies, um, Pedro Welsh, other people who were involved in, in articulating stories of, of enslaved resistance among enslaved people. But I still didn't know how you go about funding a digitization project. How do you do that? This is where it takes a community. I was um, put in touch by another really wonderful colleague and friend at the University of West Indies in Barbados at Cape Hill. Her name is Evelyn O'Callaghan, and she was actually the editor, one of the editors for the first for the first volume of the Caribbean of the Term Transition, and. She put me in touch with a woman at the University of Florida, two people at the University of Florida, who run the Digital Library of the Caribbean. And they put me in touch. It turned out to be just as I was doing a fellowship in Cambridge with someone who'd just gone to Cambridge to a guy named Press, who then let me know that the, if we need to get things digitized, the funding could come from the British Library Endangered Archives Program project. When I then read the instructions, my heart sank because it was very clear that you have to be the owner of the archives oh. <laughs> in order to get those, the order the, the, the crumbling material. And that clearly wasn't me. Um, and so eventually, it was another archivist in Barbados who had worked with the Digital Library of the Caribbean on digitizing the Jewish archives, who convinced the actual archivist in Barbados to apply for this funding. And then I was a co-applicant because I know how to do, I mean, I'm a, I'm a scholar. I've got all the kinds of things that, that people who are supplying grants want to see mm -hmm. that the material gets published, that I've had some experience doing this. And it was the first one that um, that Barbados had received. So it was thanks to especially the archivist who had done the um, Jewish archives, who was just terrific. And we got all of these pieces. It was with support of the of the Digital Library of the Caribbean, of understanding what kind of equipment would be needed. The project was started and completed then in 2018, at which point they were able to apply for it. And again, I helped on the informally and then a bit more formally on the second paper. So the first paper was the Barbados Mercury and Bridgetown Gazette, and the second one was for the Barbadian, which follows on, bit overlaps and then follows on. And then, astonishingly, in 2021, just after those digitization projects were complete, really wonderful men at the British Library received a Coleridge grant to do a crowdsourcing project called Agents of Enslavement. And he's using those two newspapers, the digitized version, to have thousands of people. So he's just finished the project and introducing a digital. And it was, the project does two things. One is it demonstrates the criminal behavior of enslavers and does an, a colonial encounter and shows exactly how that criminal behavior was manifested, controlled, how it was circulated, and the resistance strategies, courage, and ritual. 
bravery, brilliance of the enslaved and resisting. So that's just that is pretty amazing. We're going to have links to some of those um, in the footnotes um, if our if our listeners want to poke around a little bit more, maybe do some research of their own. I just want to come back to something that you said that really resonated with me, reading against the grain. And I know we, when we look for minorities, uh, women of color, uh, women, uh, enslaved people, um, children sometimes as well, right? The Those who aren't producing the big cultural text, that's something that we often wind up having to do, isn't it? Yeah, it, absolutely. And it's and that's what's so important about this material. And it's, it, it makes it very difficult to communicate, to start with the material. It's profoundly disturbing. And so I have learned to be really super careful and not just saying it needs a trigger warning, but explaining that... This is material which is disturbing because it's violent and aggressive, and and, and there's so much of it. Abuse, all of it. It's yeah. just, it's just so horrifying to read. On the other hand, what it does is, as it's also explained in the Agents of Enslavement project, it does contribute, if we're lucky, to arguments for um, reparations for actually trying to figure out how to give money to these countries where there was so much exploitation. So it demonstrates what kind of criminal behavior was was there mm-hmm. and argues for reparations to compensate for that criminal behavior. It also provides identities, ways of honoring people whose identities were otherwise lost. It gives them names, it gives them faces, it gives them the, the ads themselves are just full of the kind of personal details that you would never get in the more conventional plantation records or in shipping records. You see, you can, you've got descriptions of what they wore, what they looked like, and kind of scars, distinguishing features, the kinds of ingenious ways that they managed to escape. You've got so much detail. And I do think, maybe not now, but I think it would probably be possible to track in a, in a country like Barbados where the pockets of resistance were, that you'd mm-hmm. probably be able to identify those spaces that keep repeating. There are other kinds of things. One of the things that people know historically about enslaved people is that they were families were separated. But in the fugitive slave ads, although there is there are both those things, you see the evidence, because it will say, oh, this person who has absconded might have gone to her mother here or her father there or her uncle in another place. So it testifies to that, but it also testifies to the resilience of those networks. Yeah. So that that even though they have been torn apart, yeah. that they're still aware of those where those family members and are. And you can almost begin maybe to reconstruct some of those families. So that's why that's so important, and that's what they record, and that's why they're worth looking at, trying to figure out where to, what they can lead you to, restore histories, restore personhood to people whose presence is otherwise been forgotten. And then that's like another project you're working on here in Niagara um, in terms of restoring identity. where identities have been lost, and you've been working on a project with uh, white 
what was called the Negro Burial Ground in Niagara-on-the-Lake. Okay, so in Niagara-on-the-Lake, if you're there, there is a plot of land next to the Subway sandwich shop, um, about two blocks away from where Eliza um, had her school. And there are three graves. I know that there have been moves to replace the, that sign. Um, I don't know if it, the last time I was there, it still hadn't been done. I don't know if they were going to do it. The only person named on the sign is actually the white guy who taught the black children who would have worshipped and been educated at the Baptist church that had been there. In that burial ground, there is his white daughter and two black people, early inhabitants of the town. And then there's a, a guy named James Marshall at the moment who is also trying to do ground penetrating radar to find out if there are other graves. So only three graves are recorded that they know in the historical society. But this was also partly at the recommendation of Alessandra Cummins in Barbados, that when we talked about the fugitive slave ads, the question came up about how you recognize and how you memorialize those people. So on one hand, the ads provide verbal descriptions, but how do you provide something material? How do you change the built landscape so that these people are present in your understanding of who they were, how they lived, how they contributed to the world in which we live. At this particular moment, historically, of course, where, where all the enslavers and colonial heroes are coming down all over the place. Um, Ryerson in Toronto would be one of them. Or now the Toronto Metropolitan University. Now the Toronto, that's right, Metropolitan University. But in Barbados, it's statues of Nelson. And there are all across. What you want to do instead is to provide evidence of presence for people who resisted, people who contributed, people who lived. In Originally when I was thinking about this project, I had something in mind like the, the stumbling stones in Berlin, where the idea is that you can see people who lived in these places, that they're identified, they're memorialized, they're remembered. And it's and these are the, the markers that they put in the yeah, pavement in front right. of where their houses yeah, would have stood. So that you've got, you've got a sense of presence, and that's something that we've lost for all of the people. So you're, you're actually changing the built environment in order to construct a narrative that is different from guys on horses with guns pointing out or swords or whatever, and having, having their presence speak to people who are walking by, having their the record of their resistance, of their ingenuity, of their lived experience, of their of their work, of their um, just what they've gone through. Their, in any case, so that was the idea for developing it. Originally, I wanted to to bring this was just before COVID to engage scholars who are much more versed in these issues than I am. We were ultimately derailed by COVID, and I was going to see if we could bring them here, and we could figure out how we could put these people onto the landscape. Um, when that became clearly impossible, I got permission, because I had a small grant from Rock, and we were able to hire an amazing artist, Quentin Versetti, who has produced a concept design based on research done here by a student, uh, our research assistant, Hyacinth Campbell, and 
Kundalini and other people on the kinds of people who had rituals. This book by a guy named Benjamin Drew called, um, it's called something like Voices from the North Side of Slavery. So it was published in 1856 and includes a just whole list of, of testimonials from people who lived here and lived in this neighborhood. And it's an astonishing piece. And so Quentin had used some of that and, and he's produced a model, a, a concept design, so it's all digital at the moment, for an extraordinary memorial. And it's and he's got a very explicit way in which he's constructed it, partly honoring those kinds of people who are partly, partly honoring all kinds of other African ancestors, ideas of libation. Uh, I sent the bird. There are all kinds of pieces in it. It's completely wonderful. And from the first time I saw it, I realized that it was a kind of uplift, as they would have said in the in the Harlem Renaissance, for what it was communicating. So we are now at the. So we're trying to, so far not very successfully, connect with um, Niagara on the Lake Town Community, so the Camp Town Council to see about how that would work. So we've made initial contacts, but have not got very far so far. Um, Quentin, who has also just received the commission to do a, an actual sculpture of Lincoln, Lincoln Alexandra, and he also did the one, he won the competition in Toronto to do the memorial to Joshua Glover, who is uh, an enslaved man who, who was successful in Toronto. And Quentin's also done pieces in, in New York for Carnegie Hall. Um, so he's a terrific sculptor. And so what we're trying to do at the moment too, anybody out there who uh, has any insights on how to get this piece built in the environment, how to be a piece there. Um, I think we would look for private funding for it. Quentin because he's now had experience on making this, had costed it, and it seemed to me quite a reasonable cost for producing it. And it would change the built environment. Mm -hmm. Take the offensive Negro burial ground sign with one white person named on it and provide something which, again, Quentin has so clearly identified the components of it that would identify with people and, and celebrate their lives and the presence. Beautiful, beautiful. And of course, that really uncomfortable irony of the white people being given names. Um, so do we have any research, um, any information on the individuals who would have been buried there? Just two, and I'm sorry I've forgotten their names, but there are, there are two that are identified and they're identified in the uh, Niagara Historical Society. I don't want to get it wrong. Yeah. No, that's so okay. That's and um, and so they're the only ones you can you can find people who lived here, so you can identify people who lived in the neighborhood. There are records of some of those people in St. Mark's Church as well, because um, there were weddings, there were marriages that were in the neighborhood, and as I said, the children were taught in in the Baptist Church school that was there. So there was a community of people. Not all of them formerly enslaved people, even though we like to think about this as the, one of the a terminus for the, for the Underground Railroad, but it was, there would have been loyalists, soldiers, people from Butler's Rangers. They, would, they were uh, different kinds of people here mm -hmm. um, uh, from an African diaspora community. 
Mm-hmm. Do we have any any records or any ideas of how many people have been buried there? Or no, as far as I know, that's what I think James is going to try to do with the with the Grand Committee. Yeah, so far, I don't know how that's going. Either. He's currently looking for funding for that as well. And I'm not sure this because I, I my sense is that there's probably information around. As with most of this archival research, it's not going to be easy to find because it would have been the Baptist church where they would have had those records. I'm mm. not sure where those records are. There are, as I said, some records in St. Mark's Church of people who were married and other records, but it's often really difficult to find that. And at the moment, there might also be other headstones under there, for example, but I don't mm-hmm. know. At the moment, it just looks like a grassy field with three tiny bits of headstones and I will put some links to some of the uh, past uh, newspaper stories that have been done about that as well, so that, uh, again, any of our listeners can can read or learn a little bit more about that. It's such an interesting research story, um, how your research has shown just how interconnected and all through all coming about through this through this figure of of Eliza. Eliza. Now, when she was teaching in Niagara-on-the-Lake, was was she teaching white children or was she... Okay, so she wouldn't have been teaching any of the black children. No, although the irony is that when she left, it was the white guy who was teaching the black children who replaced her in the school. Okay, so 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 then, so she, so she's got that yeah. that link, um, sort of. In, and she left in 1833 yeah. just as um, slavery was abolished, so yeah. legislation to abolish slavery empire was abolished. And there were other kinds of odd links I found, for example, so in visits to the juvenile library, the 1805s so just before, two years before the legislation was passed to abolish the slave trade. She's got a literate nanny who does this liberation through literacy thing. In Barbados, it looks like the person who was one of the instigators, as they said in the 1818 report, was someone named Nanny Grigg, who was a literate nanny, who says, you know, because supposedly the line was that the reason of the slave rebellion was not because they had unhappy slaves. And um, I don't mean to be ironic because it's so awful, but... Um, but it's it's, yeah, but it's, it's that, that myth that is often told and right. often depicted um, exactly. throughout, whenever we talk about enslaved people of any era, that they were somehow happy and That's fulfilled right. and they wanted to be wanted enslaved, which exactly. they obviously did not. That, exactly. Yeah. And so yeah. she said, oh, you know, she thought that they was she, so Nanny Grigg had apparently given about that they were supposed to be... Um, that manumission would have occurred that weekend in 1816. And they made a mistake because it was really just about the registry bill. Mm-hmm. But so Eliza had created this enslaved nanny who learns to read. And then you've got Nanny Grigg in 1816 who supposedly instigates the rebellion because she's literate. <laughs> and then in 1833, just as, as Eliza is getting ready to leave Niagara for Toronto, the person who replaces her is the person who is teaching black enslaved children to read. And then the other kind of odd sort of connection is that John Graves Simcoe, who in 1793 is considered as responsible for doing the first legislation to kind of limit enslavement in, in Ontario. It looks like he had been um, one of the original subscribers to Equiano's narrative in, in London in the 1790s. 
And I can pretty much place Eliza with in the same circle of people as Akiyama in that period. Wow. She she really lived through some history and had some yeah. a lot of really interesting connections. Could certainly spend a lifetime tra- tracing tracing all of those connections and, and and influences. So just before we wrap up, I just wanted to shift gears a little bit and um well, I will mention, I'm not 100% certain yet what day this podcast is going to go out. Um, but if it is before Tuesday, February uh, 22nd, we will mention that um, you are talking at the St. Catharines Public Library as part of our Brock Talks series. So if you have any local listeners who want to come and learn more about, um, specifically about the efforts well, to to memorialize and, and, and place people in the landscape. We will also say that it's not just me, but it's... Quite yes. Yes. So yes. It's not a solo show. And And again, a link to that event in the footnotes. So I did want to shift gears just a little bit um, because you are currently the director of our interdisciplinary humanities PhD program. And uh, what I've been doing with our podcast uh, episodes this series is taking a little bit of time in uh, in each episode to kind of demystify um, a little bit about what we do at the university. So I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what interdisciplinary humanities is for our listeners who might not be familiar with this idea of interdisciplinary. Okay, there are in, interdisciplinary, and in it's very simplest for to me, more than one discipline. So there, if you were originally someone like a literary specialist, and you did Shakespeare, that would be, Shakespeare would you be your thing, and you wouldn't know anything about history or contemporary <laughs> poetry or anything like that. So an interdisciplinarity begins with the assumption that in order to contribute in a, the most effective way in a contemporary world, you really have to have access to more than one specialized body of knowledge. The, one, the disciplines that are primarily represented in interdisciplinary humanities, and it partly reflects our teaching faculty component, would be people from digital humanities, from history, from music, from theater, from literature. And people who are the students are doing amazing projects. We're beginning to work on, we've got students who are thinking about research creation, so students who are working on material arts as well as as how they're theoretical, they're informed theoretically. And a student who's just working on animal rights, people who are working on game theories and and, and war zones, you know, just all mixing those ideas. So normally you'd have people who do war studies, and you'd have people who might do um, games, but putting those people together or putting those disciplines together enables you to have really uh, insightful, inspiriting, collaborative ways in which, they, in which you can face the problems of the world and resolve them. So the kinds of people that we're seeing coming through interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary humanities have those combined research interests. So someone who is interested in animal studies might have done biology or have those kinds of historical piece that this kind of scientific background, but also understanding about how animal that has to fit with law, how it fits into the world of rights, how it fits in with what we understand about ethics and 
human behavior, what it visual is culture, visual culture, <laughs> literature, all, all of literature, those, all, all of those, those components. Things. So that's what's so exciting about watching the kind of work that's being done in interdisciplinary humanities now. And the idea is that uh, these are people who I think will change the world. I, I served for three years on the shirt banting juries. And again, I was on the humanities piece, and it was something that would I would have to look at people who are working in different disciplines in the humanities. And there is just such astonishing work going on, and you, you keep feeling that these people can see a future. So all the time we think about how we're stuck in so many problems, to see the kinds of imaginative possibilities that these people are working on, that's what gives us the kind of hope for the possibilities of the future, because they are thinking about our current problems which feel intractable, which feel impossible. By bringing that multiple perspectives to each problem, you can see that they can figure out a way of, of trying to address it, and that's very exciting. And one of the exciting things um, about your program, too, is this research creation component. I think we, ought, we may often think of research in the humanities as a lot of reading and writing, but research creation kind of throws a new angle at it, at sharing what you're learning. And it, it can be a material piece. So um, it could be something that's made by someone who is, has been working in wood and creates that understanding the research creation part involves understanding that what the impact of that is, what the historical trace, what the philosophical rationale for that is. Um, I, I did say this to one of our colleagues, so she, she disagreed with me, um, but I thought, oh, research creation, it's like a Tom Stoppard play. You know? <laughs> <laughs> on, what is it, um, relative positive, whatever it is, positive philosophy. Um, um, and so maybe not, not that, but uh, I did for one of our former students who was then um, adjudicating a panel in Toronto in the fall on research creation, had some wonderful examples, including someone who had done pieces on the, I think they were going to have not have been in Marina Perry's and the fact that they were then, or Wood Buffalo, so I think it must have been Buffalo, and how these have been murdered and then put on then kind of reserves by white people and then what the impact was for the indigenous people who were still wanting to hunt them. And so thinking about those kinds of complex relationships between legal rights, human rights, cultural rights, animal survival, diversity in the, in the population of species on a that kind of thing. The uh, research creation component gives, gives people um, both the researcher, but then the audience that they're, presumably the non-specialist audience that they're communicating with, uh, just a different way to engage and think about, um, because we're not all, you know, sit down and read a very scholarly. scholarly work. And I mean, a dissertation is a very particular type of scholarship too. So it's not necessarily even something that people would feel comfortable picking up to read. Um, but to think about these issues and say through visual arts, through drama, through game, through through some of these, these other media that uh, are so important to what we do. Well, it does the other thing about the way 
the academy is, a, is evolving, that we no longer think about it as an enclosed space, a closed mm. space. So if you're in places like Cambridge, for example, or, or Oxford, those were literally walled colleges where the walls are, are outside and you keep people inside. And we now live in a, a world where it's just so much more important to have those borders be permeable. And that's where research creation fits into, as you say, it's for something which is both a specialist and non-specialist audience, but also informed by the specialist work mm -hmm. I have. I know it probably wouldn't count, but it would be someone, someone like Kent Monkman, for example, doing a piece in the Royal Ontario Museum, interacting with the historical artifacts and then recreating what the, what the historical trace would be. So it's both his art, his art in context of the historical thing, which would be regarded a humanities discipline um, and how you imagine those reimagining, communicating to the public and to scholarly audiences. Yeah, so it's so important for everything that we do in the humanities of um, taking that, well, I mean, th this very podcast, right. taking that conversation beyond just ourselves to include everyone that's interested. And communicating in what one of my own former editors used to say to a general interested audience. Yes. If you are not <laughs> communicating to, if people don't understand you, then you don't want to do that. <laughs> Exactly. Well, I hope that our audience, our, our listeners today have certainly taken something important away from, from our conversation. I know that you have given me lots to think about, and I am very much looking forward to your talk at the public library that's, uh, that's, that's coming up. So thank you for joining us for Forward. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Lisa, for making the time thank today. It's been so such much. a pleasure. As you can tell, I love doing the work I do, and I think that's one of the things that there's also, from the students too, there's a real sense of intellectual joy in this work, and that's what we really want to share. So thanks so much, too. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Forward. Find our footnotes, links to more information, transcripts, and past episodes on our website, brockuca humanities. We love to hear from our listeners, so join us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Brock Humanities. Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode. Forward is hosted and produced by Allison Innes for the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University. Sound editing is by Serena Attella, and theme music is by Khaled Amam. This podcast is financially supported by the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University.